Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ammo Art Chat. I'm Linda Fissler. I'm happy to be with you this evening. I hope you're having a great evening on the on the East Coast and uh, all across America. I guess, you know, the time changes in different time zones, so, and around the world, actually, because we have some international um, listeners as well. So I hope you're having a great day or a great evening, depending on where you are in the world. Um, I'm going to be flying solo tonight. My co-hosts have uh, left me for a workshop. They're uh, going to be out painting in New Mexico uh, with Kevin McPherson, and he was actually going to be starting his workshop, I guess, on Monday. So um, hi to Blanche and Barbara, and I hope they have a great time out out in Taos. And I just want to have a couple announcements, but basically the show tonight is going to be with Michael Harding of Michael Harding Handmade Oil Colors or Oil Paints. And uh, we're going to talk to Michael about some of his uh, additions to the line of paints that he offers and uh, a very interesting uh, process of of how he makes his new uh, stack lead white paint. So we'll get into that here in a couple minutes. Uh, But I have a couple announcements that I need to make. I promised my friend Deborah over at the... um, AIS, American Impressionist Society, that I would remind all of our friends who are part of American Impressionist Society that the 14th annual National Jurd Show deadline to enter is tomorrow. So you have about a little over 24 hours or so to enter your paintings. You can enter them at the Juried Art Services website. There is a link to that off of the AmericanImpressionistSociety.org website. So go to our website and enter the show if you have a need to do that. You've got, like I said, a little over 24 hours um, to do that. So um, took care of that. Let's see what else do we have to talk about. Um, The Edges painting challenge on Facebook has been extended. So the deadline was, I think, tomorrow. We've extended it a couple more uh, weeks so that you guys can work on those painting edges a little bit more and post your paintings in uh, Facebook for all of us to to look at and and talk about. also would like to remind people that if you would like to follow the show, there's a little follow the show button. I think it's underneath the Artist Mentors Online, our Ammo Art Chat logo up there on the left side of the screen. So we appreciate it if you follow us and you'll get uh, updates and the show reminders and things like that. If you don't want to follow us here and would rather sign up for our newsletters, there's two places that you can do that. The newsletter is basically the same at, at no matter where you sign up. One is on the artistmentorsonline.com website, and it's in the upper right-hand corner. Or you can sign on, um, sign up for newsletters at lindafisler.com, and again, up in the right-hand corner. Um, some other little bitty pieces of news that um, I'm going to be a little shameless here and say that I took on an instructor's position at the Artist Network University. And the first course that I'll be teaching is starts July 2nd. So if you know anybody that wants to begin uh, to paint, have them sign up for the course. And that's over at Artist Network University. Um, and I, I, 
think the website is a little bit different, but if you go to my website, you'll see a link to it, um, so you can get there uh, that way. So with all of that said and out of the way, took care of business, um, I'm going to bring in Michael Harding. Hello, Michael. It's good to have you back. Hi, Linda. Hi, everyone. Nice to be back. Yeah. So you've been a busy guy, I see. Stack led uh, Stack led Excuse me. Yeah, yeah. Indeed, so tell us indeed. a little bit. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's probably best if I do a slight recap of what this is really about. Uh, yeah, I know some great. of you out there, yeah, I know some of you out there would have, would have heard me talking about this before, and some of you have no idea what the significance is. I mean, obviously, as artists, we always struggle uh, with color, but particularly whites. I mean, I think we'd all, most of us agree that something like 30% of a painting is generally made up of a white. It seems to be the base by which we all sort of maneuver ourselves color-wise. And anyway, so, the, the, you know, the white is there for the fundamental building block. So let alone discussions about which white we use, you've got to sort of consider the sort of handling qualities of these things. And the, the key thing about the, uh, the stacked lead white is if you think back in history, this is before sort of industrialization, um, artists only really had their environment to sort of depend upon to sort of to gather up materials from which to make their paint. And as I've said before, you know, they it's what I call farmyard sort of technology. They they had their environment, they had the the sort of the ground beneath their feet, they they had the, the various animals around them, they had strange plants that grew around. And of course they had to try and find ways to sort of harness and encapsulate these colours in a way that would work. Uh, and that's you know, let alone the considerations for permanence. Uh, permanence also not just from the light fastness point of view, but the actual physical strength of the, of the actual material itself and, and therefore the longevity because you don't want a painting which has got flaking paint quite obviously. So the main white that was used, oh, let me think, probably, I'm trying to, I can't remember the dates when the zinc and titanium came along, but there's some relatively industrialized revolution stuff. But the white that the whole of uh, the art world was using up until probably the 1850s certainly was lead white. And lead white was made in what they, what has been known generally as the stack, Dutch stacked lead process. Simple, well, I, was, I would say simple process, but I have to sort of bite my, bite my own tongue there at that point. <laughs> it's, it's sort of one of those things where when you hear how it's made, you're just going to go, what? Oh, come on, he's joking. Oh, come on. But anyway, it's like this. What they used to do, the old guys, was, was to suspend lead strips over vinegar. They mustn't touch. And they'd be enclosed in little pots, containers, whatever. And they're buried under horse poo. And that is absolutely no joke. And I can tell you briefly, I'm no chemist, but I'll, I'll sort of, from a layman's point of view, tell you the sort of chemistry that's taking place. Vapor comes off the uh, the vinegar, and it corrodes the surface of the lead, initially turning it into a lead acetate sort of coating, which happens to be white. And then the the animal uh, dung, the horse poo, has to be horse because the horse is sort of the highest, got the highest level of carbonic acid, converts that lead acetate into a lead carbonate. And if you think of it in these Think of it in these terms. We've all seen lumps of iron rusting. It corrodes, it oxidizes. 
and you get this marvellous sort of orangey shade that we're all familiar with. When lead does it, it produces white colours. So, of course, if you think that um, the artists of yesterday, they, you know, obviously, I think back to the time of the Romans, at least, um, and, that, you know, you can read so many different accounts of, as to how Silas is traced back. The Egyptians understood it, the Chinese understood it, uh, the Romans understood it. Um, I mean, the Romans were surrounded by vinegar from their wine, and they, they worked with lead a lot, as we know, from everything from lead drinking vessels to lead pipes with their water systems to uh, lead coffins was another thing. They, you know, lead, lead was abundant in their sort of technology. And right. vinegar, of course, from wine. So, you know, these were sort of available materials, and it wasn't long probably before they noticed that when lead corroded, it corroded in this marvellous sort of dusty white material. Now, when you, of course, do this, what tends to happen is that the the lead strips corrode away and it comes away, it almost looks like parchment, like paper. It comes away in flakes. And that's why, of course, at one time it was referred to as flake white. I mean, that term many of you will still be familiar with today and that's that's where the term was born. Um, I decided, because of you know this this difficulty we've, we've all been talking about for the last couple of years, of getting lead carbonate, um, I decided to set about making my own. Reason being, uh, and again I'm probably repeating myself, but just sort of recap very briefly, there was only one or two companies in the world which were making an industrial form of lead carbonate, which the likes of myself and all the other colour makers who chose to make a lead white were relying upon. And very involution, they, for whatever reasons, uh, scale of economics or lack of interest financially, they've generally started to uh, you know, cease production, or rather they've stopped production. And, of course, I know that guys out there, every bit as much as myself, the lead white is such an essential building block within, a, within, within paint. I mean, it has a completely unique handling. Even the industrial stuff has a unique handling. And so, you know, when this, this sort of the, the so-called chronic lead shortage came about, I read up on the history of it, and I thought, well, come on. If they all used to do it all those years ago, why can't I? So I, I got myself out into the Welsh hills with a couple of buckets and a, a very trusty member of my staff who happens to be a zoologist, Richard. He's a great guy, and I said, well, if you're, if you're a zoologist, it certainly qualifies you to come out and take, pick up horse poop with me. <laughs> and um, so we spent, spent a couple of days um, gathering up horse poop, building... Uh, our stack, it's called a stack because you effectively build up layers, pot after pot after pot, uh, and then put in some planking, and then another layer, pot after pot after pot, and hence stack. And, and the, the Dutch perfected this particular stacking method, although um, everywhere from Venice to England uh, were doing, we, we were all using this same process of, of lead over vinegar. The Dutch fundamentally sort of invented this method of, of stacking it up. And it it has great history because I in in all the readings and writings I've, I've been sort of studying uh, I'm, I'm no historian but you get it's great insight into all the sort of the, the battles internationally of trades that have been taking place and you know again if you think back to the fact that the only way to be able to paint your outside of your house white was to use this material in the past so it had a huge economic advantage and. Um, there was literally trade wars that would take place between one country and another, uh, even to the point where 
you know, I think I have to say that the English should have they blockaded the Dutch, so the Dutch no longer could trade in it, and even and even tried to sort of um, stop any sort of form of import of materials, raw materials that could be used to make the lead paint. That and, and that's how it was. So, um, and incidentally, this this blockade also led to um, the financial downfall of Holland as a country, uh, and. And then the knock-on effect was guys like Mr. Rembrandt, uh, his clients went broke. Uh, he no longer could afford to to paint. And as we all know, the, the, you know his financial demise was, uh, well, I mean, from the financial crisis of Holland, which was caused, I believe, and I, and I hope the historians aren't there, out there sort of buzzing around thinking, what is, what is this guy talking about? But from what I've read, it caused this, this financial decline of, of Holland, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just a, a war against the white paint trade, it was everything. Uh, and we tried to, you know, as you always tried to do with your enemy, you tried to financially cripple them. And right. so the terrible knock-on effect of this political skirmish was the fact that our dear friend Rembrandt no longer was painting because of his financial difficulties. So, you know, it, it, I love when you, when you peel back the layers of the onion of, 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 of studying things like this, you learn all these other little facts. I... I'd always thought that Rembrandt was just financially incompetent and uh, couldn't manage the, his affairs, but no, it was because of the financial difficulty of the country that uh, I believe the Baileys came, Baileys came in and took away furniture and all sorts of other terrible things. So where was yeah. I? Let me think. I, I got to the um, point of explaining how you're this, in the, this stuff's made. Yeah, the Dutch were um, the ones you were using their stacking method. Yeah, and so that off. seems to be... Yeah, that, that seems to be the sort of um, method by, by by which became standard, and that's the one I've employed, and I'm getting what I regard as fantastic results. I, the first batch that I made was sort of about 20, 30 kilos, and when sort of the, the point was proven that, yes, it does work, and it's a bit like magic. It's one of those things. It's uh, it's probably a bit like when you put a cake in the oven or you know, make a loaf of bread and you certainly can't believe it's doing what the instructions tell you, that it should rise and all those things. When you actually sort of peel back the, the, the horse dung after a few weeks and see this corrosion of the lead strips taking place, and incidentally, the, the horse dung has, has an additional uh, contribution it makes. It warms the entire pile of stuff up, and I'm sure plenty of people who did chemistry at school will recall that heat obviously always speeds and helps any chemical reaction. So you get this marvellous pile of stuff cooking away, and it smells fantastic. But <laughs> if any of you, if any of you do, yeah, I mean, okay, I've got rather peculiar taste when it comes to the quality of horse poop. But if any of you do decide to try and uh, do this yourself, and you know, it's one of those things. Do try this at home, at home, folks. Because I, I think anything that brings artists closer to the materials they should um, consider that. The actual material, as soon as it corrodes that lead, is technically poisonous. And mm -hmm. I must absolutely emphasize that I love doing this, but I don't want to get ill. So I take absolutely right. every single precaution. I mean, if you, if you saw me, as soon as that lead is buried in, in, in the stuff, from then on, I only I approach it. And I approach it looking like something from um, a science fiction film. Um, yes. 
Oh, totally. It looks like a crime scene. I, I'm there with a respirator, uh, a complete um, tunic which covers me from from head to foot, um, and and even then, as soon as I leave the area, I wash my face, I wash my hands. Uh, I complete I completely treat it as if it's trying to kill me. It, it so, is only poisonous when it's in that dry form. Once I encapsulate it with an oil. Sorry, Lynn, are you trying to say something? Yeah, I was just going to ask you, uh, Michael, I'm just curious from my corporate days. Are you? Is the stack actually outside or is it inside your, your plant in a special room and all that? It, it's not inside my plant. I have a special container for it. It's sort of like I have an outside facility for it. And okay. I, have, I, I don't want to sound too close to Dagger, but it's at a secret location. Mainly because of well, the value yeah, of the letters put in it. Yeah, I don't need to know um, exactly where, because I live over here and I wouldn't be able to get to it anyway, but we wouldn't want to say that anyway. I was just curious if you no, no, like, no, I mean, had to call a big hood and, you know, and, and all that. I could, I could, the, the, old, as the old joke goes, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you afterwards. I, it, yeah, it's well, mainly it's because... It's a little hard. We're in the same room. <laughs> so. it, it's mainly right. it's because... Quite clearly, if if I if I put a you know like half a ton of lead into this thing as I have done, the lead in itself right. has commercial value. And there's, there's plenty of people who'd. So yeah, it, it is it is in a very safe place, and it also right. has to be in a very safe place so that um, even if someone inadvertently gets in, which is almost right. impossible, uh, because my conscience wouldn't allow me. I mean, I've even notified the local authorities so that they they know where it is, and so even if they're the curiosity arouses them that, um, and what I'm doing is is totally legal. It's not as if it's going to be the sort of, sort of thing that it's not going to end up in a sort of a meltdown, which is going to end up with the thing sinking into the ground like a nuclear waste plant or anything like that. It's just corroding lead yeah. in a very contained and safe environment, but safely. That's the key thing. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. But, but my point so, is, I mean, so there are there's quite a few things. Sorry. Can I say again? I said, so it's starting to flake away, and then I assume when it gets to that point, you start the uh, the drying out process, and it becomes yeah. less pigment. Yeah. Yeah. what I what I do, um, I scrape it off. It comes off in the slate, so you scrape it off. Uh, the lead that's not fully corroded, that's still got sort of a haze of, of the white uh, corrosion on, it gets simply put in a pile to be recycled again. It, we just we just keep going with it. And mm-hmm. the the flakes, if you like, I, I then I then crush up, and they they have to be washed a number of times. When I say washed, what what I I pulverise them underwater uh, with a high speed stirrer mixer thing I've got, which completely just turns it into sort of the uh, the consistency of sort of uh, flour and water. Um, and then we wash out any any residing residue of the sort of lead acetate, which is which is water soluble. And you can get the really peculiar colours, sort of blues and greens, which is a the classic sign that it's all working quite well. And the water actually washes out in a sort of bluey green colour. And I can reuse I can reuse the water to, to wash a few times, but of course after the, after a while the water becomes to a point where it's so I hate to use this word contaminated that I could, there's no point in continuing to use it. And no, I do not put, uh, then flush it down the drain. It goes away to be uh, cleaned up by uh, companies which have special credentials to do this. 
uh, and they completely clean the water up, take any residue out, and, and they process it away so it's disposed of in a completely environmentally friendly way. I mean, there, you know, there's plenty of companies around the world that carry out these sort of industrial processes for people. So please, guys out there listening, don't think that this is anything which is going to end up in, in a water supply or anything like that. Absolutely not. Uh, and, well, my conscience alone wouldn't let me. So, yeah, the, the product gets washed about three or four times until there's no color coming out. We then spread it out and allow it to dry. And once it dries, it, it dries rather like a plaster. And again, then we, we pulverize it to a point where it's um, had the feeling of flour. And at that point, is, uh, I then mix it with linseed oil and I put it through one of my very small stone triple roll mills, which has the same action as if I was hand grinding it. And I know some of you out there are probably thinking, well, surely it should be hand grinding it. Well, I'll be absolutely honest with you. If I was to make a single tube, it would probably take me about three or four hours. And quite clearly, it would be not as well done and completely financially unviable. I mean, if, if you guys out there want to try it and do it yourself or you go hand grinding, you're absolutely welcome. I mean, I've got one or two friends who do. People like uh, Leo Mantini Hareshko, he, he will always stir it up with him, himself. And the same as Rupert Alexander loves to do it that way. And you can you can just mash it up with a palette knife with the linseed oil and produce a perfectly workable paste. I I like to take it one stage further so I get complete saturation of that those particles. But the key thing is is the result. Um, first of all, you have something which is almost unworkable. It's it's stiff and rock hard like 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 putty, and completely what appears to be completely unusable. But after a few hours of, of allowing to sort of stand and calm down, it goes through various changes. And I don't, I'll be honest with you, I, I don't completely understand the physics that are taking place. But if I can just sort of come over at a tangent to, the, to a, a point, there's been this huge debate as to what Rembrandt put into his whites. How did he achieve this, this painterly, goopy, squidgy thing with his, with his, with his lead whites? And there's always this sort of search for what did he put in? But the key thing is, no, it's what he left out. Now, I could demonstrate in front of you, and I mean, I think I've got a couple of photographs on my my Facebook page, which for the life of me, I can never remember the, uh, oh, it's something like Facebook, uh, Michael, I, I, I'm sure you guys, have, I'm sure you'll find it, or you can Michael? find it from my website. Michael? It's, it's, it should be. I, yeah, go on. I was going to say, I, I took those pictures <laughs> I know, since I know you, I don't do this all the time, but since I know you, you and I knew you were going to be talking about this, I took the pictures off of your Facebook page, and they are actually on the show page, um, so they'll be rotating. So the three pictures that you have on your Facebook page are actually on our show page right now, and they should be showing You're up. Fantastic. You're saying thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope that the uh, picture never quite shows. I mean, I should be doing a video, which we would like to do at some point. I hope, though, therefore, those pictures show. The extraordinary thing is, if you squeeze the material out of a, out of a tube straight away, it the first thing you notice is it's just so incredibly dry and stodgy. You can hardly get it out of the tube, and so far we could only put it into 40 more tubes. There's very small ones about the size of your your forefinger. If we put it into a large tube, you simply—I mean, I put it into a 225 mil tube—and you simply can't get it out. 
and I, when I explain the, the nature of how it behaves, then it will make more sense as to why you can't get it out. Okay, so if you squeeze a bit out of a 40ml tube and you start touching it with a palette knife and it has this, first of all, the texture of very cold butter, or as I said before, putty, when you start maneuvering it, when you start introducing that sort of an energy, that's exotropic nature, in other words, stir it and it becomes mobile and thin nature, hits in with such uh, ferocity, within about 30 seconds you've gone from something which is like almost like clay to something which is behaving and flowing like syrup and it follows you around. And you can get to a point where, I call it dancing, you get the, you put a palette knife onto the top of it and sort of tease it and it starts going from being short and sticky uh, to a point where you can, I think the photograph shows, you can start flicking off and you get strands that follow the palette knife up in that, in that photograph, I believe. You, it, it'll go two inches, sometimes more. And it just, uh, but as soon as you stop, it solidifies. And that is the nature that I believe, and, I, and I, I, I am convinced that Rembrandt had within his paint. So often people would look at the, the industrial uh, produced lead carbonate, and it, would have, it wouldn't really change. It would have this, you know, this, this sort of thick stodginess. And yeah, that's, it's great, it works. But this other stuff, the stack stuff, it just becomes goopy and starts following the brush around and you get these marvellous brush strokes. Um, as I said, my friend Leo, he, uh, I gave it to him for a couple of weeks and next time I visited his studio, he comes running up to me with a, a, a small landscape and he says, look, 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 look at the sky. And absolutely, there were brush strokes which I recognised from sort of, which, which, you know, an abundance of paintings, anything sort of 19th century and before had these this brush strokes of this sort of flowy, goopy thing. And I started thinking, that's it. It's there. And so the key is, it's not, not as if you put something into the paint. It's just that additional manipulation, which, which, is, which for me is, this is, I mean, I've, I've been looking at this now for something like, I've been trying to find out, uh, and I was never brave enough uh, to do this, I've been trying to find exactly how Rembrandt achieved these brush strokes with his whites. Um, needless to say, of course, to you know whatever other colour, you, you to, 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 depending upon the sort of concentration how much you put in, um, other colours going into the white will of, will of course incorporate this same mannerism as well. Mm-hmm. Um, to to a point, you can get to the you know uh, when you saturate it out with the other colour, then of course it starts to take on the the characteristic of the other coloured paint. But right. No, so that, that 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 is for me particularly exciting. There are guys out there who this will find this book would be utterly meaningless to. Um, right. There's other guys who it will be. I mean, like David LaFell, uh, I know now, and Jeremy Lipkin. Uh, it's becoming almost a, a way of painting for them. That they, since they started painting with this, they, they just have it. Uh, um, I know that Tony's been playing around with Tony Pro's been playing around with it. Uh, I don't know if it quite works for him. I, I, um, I've yet to quiz him on this, but I know it works for, for, for David and it works for Jeremy. Alexi, I'm almost scared to put it in front of him because I know he'll just go, Alexi still, because of his personality, he'll just have to have it. And it'll. And I'm, I'm, I know I've given him some, but I'm, I'm almost scared of him getting addicted to it. 
<laughs> the, the size that the guy paints at, you know, is just uh, is almost immoral. The amount of paint that he he will get through, and I, and I know that he alone could probably, at the moment, take all, all my production. But that's the way it goes. Right. Incidentally, right. while I'm while I'm mentioning Tony Pro, uh, can I just say I would just very much like to extend my my sympathy to to Tony and his family tonight. I don't know if you know Linda. Tony lost his dad yeah, this morning. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to yeah, say, and I, I, Jeremy was kind enough to leave me a voice message just before I came on air, and uh, yeah, we're thinking of you, Tony. You're a great guy, and you, you make a great family. So our hearts go out to you. Anyway, and that's sad. Mate. We're we're trying to sort of move on from it, but um, yeah. So yeah, there's plenty of painters. Some, I mean, CW. Uh, I hope you're listening. He CW Monday. He will love it, or it just won't do anything for him. And I don't know which yet. I know he likes to get his paint somehow sort of goopy and flowing, and he calls it marbling and so on. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure whether it'll work for him. Um, what about George? I mean, George, George is probably one that it won't make any difference to, but, I mean, only George can tell me that. I mean, George being right. such a colorist, I mean, if you're familiar with George's paintings... He is like the modern-day Monet, almost. He just loves that fizz that he gets from colours. Um, I don't know. I think it's... Um, you'd have to try well, and tell me. I mean, yeah, I know he and... Uh, well, I like a lot of texture, and I know he likes a lot of texture, and I was thinking texturally, if that's a word, um, that I have to try... Yeah. I'm going to have to try this. So, because I, you know, I've been doing a lot of things with palette knives to to get some of this, you know, gloppiness, if you want to call it that, and it's, you know, in my paintings. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, maybe, you know, maybe what I should be doing is not so much palette knife. I I moved to the palette knife to get that, but it could be the fact that the paint I'm using isn't doing what I want it to do when I use a brush. So yeah, I mean, I, 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 this, this is, that's that's my point. I mean, when you look at a sergeant. And you get those wonderful swashbuckling, goopy brush strokes that he he threw around as as if as if to say, well, come on, aren't, can't we all do this? And it, you know, it just sort of flowed off his brush like it was elementary. Um, that's you know, it's always a sign of, of huge talent and capability. Uh, you know, the deft of hand of sort of the potter throwing the pot, and uh, as if you know, surely we can all do this. But if, you know, you try it and it doesn't work. But um, no, um, George's paintings are, as we know, he he can lay it on. Not that the men can lay it on. It sort of comes on. A, sometimes it's as thick as the icing on a cake, multicolored right. cakes, uh, and it has those beautiful sort of impasto um, peaks and you know goopy brush strokes. But I I I, I don't know. Um, George will certainly get some if he hasn't already had some because I I will make make sure he does. I'll, I'll tie him to the palette, so he has to play with it. But um, <laughs> I'm not sure because you see, when you get someone like Jeremy, who you know he he will be such a the way that he will paint in so delicately uh, right. and faces of porcelain, and and uh, you know Jeremy is the type of guy who can lay a brushstroke down, uh, as does as does David Lefell, and if that brushstroke is not right, it has to come out or be reworked. And he has, mm-hmm. they have to have that level of control 
they, they know that it's going to do exactly what's in their mind's eye. Um, yeah, I think I think George is. It's a pity we couldn't ask him, but um, you know he throws it around. But I, he right. throws all paint around like that. But, yes. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe get some feedback on that sometime. But uh, okay. yeah, I, mean, I think who am I to say who should and who shouldn't be using it? it it's just. I, I think that probably because it's uh, the likes of Rembrandt and all, and all the sort of the figurative people who go before us, that, that, that this was their familiar building block. Um, it should work for them. Um, other people would just go, I don't see what the fuss is about. I mean, a white's a white, so what's the problem? And I get that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But where it comes to the search for Rembrandt's missing medium, it was never there, which is the most curious thing, I think. Hmm. Yeah, that's it, it's interesting listening to the you know, the method that you go through, and and it, when you were talking about this, and actually you asked you answered a couple other questions that we had. I was like, what made you decide to make this paint available? Well, you were looking for that specific. Gloppiness, if you want to call it that, I guess is one aspect. And, yeah. And what Rembrandt was, was leading out. There, there were two reasons. As I said, um, even prior to the uh, industrial makers of lead carbonate ceasing to make it, I'd always heard and read and was suspicious as to the wider brush strokes of, of the old guys were completely different to the, the lead, lead whites of modern day. Um, and you know, in, 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 incidentally, I, I also now have sourced an, uh, an industrially made lead carbonate from from Asia, which we also bring in, and that's that's also readily available. Uh, I'm shortly going to be making that with walnut oil, just to have a bit of fun, just sort of, uh, just add some variations so people can sort of play around with that as well. So, yeah, I'll, right. I'll be absolutely honest with you, Linda. Um, if if life was forever and there were no financial constraints, I would love to be making every single pigment that I, I purchase and, and turn into paint. Uh, of course, the logistics of the whole thing don't allow that. But right. everything like, uh, you know, my new Rose Matter, which has come out, and my, my, my uh, red lead, other, other colors which we're adding, and there's a whole stack that I want to add. Um when you start playing around with something like rose matter and you just realize that the the wonderfully clever people in France who were able to make the pigment uh, from a plant root and then suspend it upon a substrate, I know it starts to be a bit strange, but what they do, you, you, you have a dye and you've got to look at a way of tricking, of, of cheating almost, getting that dye into oil. And so what they do, they, they they dye or stain a substrate. In the old days, it used to be powdered chalk, which has virtually no tint power of its own. So you stain it and fix it, glue it, and, and the process is it's referred to as a mordant, something which uh, fixes that stain to the substrate, to the, the underlying inert pigment almost, and let it dry, and then you... Then take that synthetic pigment. So you've now, you've now got your chalk powder, if you like, stained a, a, a sort of a pink colour, and you then treat it as, as a normal pigment and and mix it in with oil. 
So, but all these processes are just so wonderful. Uh, if time allowed, as I said, I'd love to be making all these things. So credit to the guys in France who've produced some marvellous pigment, and uh, I still search the globe for other things like it, and hopefully more to come. Right. So you have, um, we have this backlit white that you've been working on, which has probably taken yeah. up a lot of time after we listened to the process, and then the rose matter that you've just introduced. So how many colors does Michael Harding oil paint have today available? Oh, do you know offhand? I don't. I don't know. Around? I, I do know. Yeah, I'm joking aside. It's about it's about seventy four, I believe. We we lost a couple of the lead whites, which we used to turn into flake white, and the, rather than sort of complicating the the, the 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 sort of the playing field, as it were, we've we sort of streamlined those down to the stack lead. And as I said, I'm considering doing um, my normal industrial uh, lead carbonates, which we already do in Nitsa. I'm considering doing it into into walnut. And I'm also, I've added, or in the process of adding, not quite available in the United States yet for various uh, political reasons, well, not political, it's the wrong expression, but health and safety and toxicity reports are now being done on, on these new colours, which takes a bit of time, and we, we can't start selling in the United States until this has been done. Um, oh, even okay. if we know stuff is poisonous, uh, we have to get the toxicologist to tell us Yes, it is poisonous, and this is what you have to put on the label. And of course, understandable if we don't do it exactly to the you know the letter and the word of what we we, right. we have to say. And if we get it wrong, uh, of course we're, we're we're liable. And so it won't go on sale until we've got that absolutely um, nailed, as it were. We we have to get that right. Now, other parts of the world, like the UK, um, legislation is different. There, we don't have the same labelling uh, laws. It's more just more laws around containers and, and making sure that people can't get confused and thinking that uh, white lead paint toothpaste or something rather silly because it all stems out of a tube. Um, <laughs> so once we've got that toxicology report in, for the United States, uh, the stuff will become available here. So I'm, I'm sorry, guys, I, I don't have a... It's imminent. It'll be in the, in the next few weeks, hopefully. And we yes, but so the new colours are at the moment uh, we have a lead tin yellow light shade which is coming. Which I, I gave a sample to Jeremy Lipkin and he just is in swoons over it. Uh, I have a red lead, otherwise originally known as a minimum, which sort of is actually to the naked eye an orange shade, which was another colour which occurred on the on the Ancients palette. I have a green umber, which is coming from. Italy, which uh, is, a, is about to be unveiled, and completely non-toxic, but again, has to go through the same toxicologist report just to simply tell us what we can and can't put on the label, so bear with on that one. I have a French ochre, which is to die for. It has this most gorgeous, I cannot tell you, it just is oh, sexy beyond belief. It's just one of these colours you just want to, you, you know, when you see it, you just it just this, it has this wow factor, and you think of all the other colours you can sort of introduce to it to make it glow. And from the portrait point of view, it's just it's just paint with me. It just says it to you. It's just that and the rose matter and the stack layers. Uh, you see those three play together, and it's oh, what can I say? There aren't the words. And I but I plan to introduce 
I think it all about another 25 cars. I think we're currently at about 74. I'd like to end up about the round figure of 100, 100. Um, mm-hmm. Many of you out there are probably thinking, well, come on, I only paint with 8 or 9 or 10, which is, I know, <laughs> a subject of, of our discussion in a minute. Uh, right. But, no, um, what works for one man doesn't work for another. I mean, I, I have colours within my range that I, I personally don't like. But other people, mm-hmm. my, my my artists, consumers, love them, and they become a way of life for them. Uh, I, I, and I, I can be very discriminating. I mean, sometimes I infuriate my staff, as I've said before, because the day will nag me that certain colors have to be made, and if I don't like them, I won't make them. And and uh, I drive them mad because they will come on, people, people are ordering them, you, you, you've got to do it. And I go, oh, no, I don't feel like it today. Um, not in the mood for it. And I will discriminate against certain colours, and there's other colours which I absolutely adore. Things like thing, uh, things like Alizar and crimson and the rose manner, anything that's a bit exotic. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. but I mean something. And I mean anyone out there who loves oxide of chromium, you have my sympathy. It's just up to you. But for me, it's the dullest colour on the planet. I'm sorry, but it's my personal opinion. Uh, Paint with it if you like, and love it if you like. But it's a colour that I loathe making. It just doesn't do it for me. Certain turquoises just don't do it. Cobalt turquoise. I'm thinking, why do artists paint with it? But I mean, that again is my personal opinion. Um, I've got artists who love my cobalt turquoise. I'm pleased to say, but and who am I to say they shouldn't? It's just a colour that just doesn't turn me on personally as an artist. But it's all about personal preference, and I, I know that this is one of the topics of the discussion tonight, Linda. So I, I don't know if you want to sort of. Uh, introduce that aspect or, or how you want to handle it or if you want to talk about lead whites more in the existing range it's entirely up to you well what i was what i was going to ask you is um before we got into that and it's kind of a way into to talking about it um was you're you're known in the art world as the color man and um you're obviously just through your last you know five minutes of discussion about the different colors that you make driven about you know, like color drives you, but but what what actually, how do you decide on what color you're going to go after next? Is, is it through oh. research, seeing old master paintings, wondering how they made a particular color, or you just look at it's a color complete. outside your window and go, I have to make that color? <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. First of all, I, I'm so amused by the idea that I'm considered, you know, referred to as the artist, uh, Color man, I suppose there, there are ruder things that could be said about me, so I, I shouldn't really <laughs> complain. Or I could be referred to as the colourless man, but there we go. Yeah, so I should, I'm absolutely flattered by 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 that suggestion. Uh, yeah, I'm sort of led many times by history, of course. When I when I look at um, paintings by Titian, Vermeer, Tintoretto, um, the list is endless, and I see that how they could work with certain colours, and they had less choices than we have today, yet they managed to get those things to work. I mean, the colours were, you know, if you look at a lapis compared to an mm-hmm. ultramarine blue, an ultramarine blue has got far more zing and purity and clarity about it, but then when you play with a lapis, it's got far more subtlety and gentleness and, and empathy with other colours about it. Um, you don't want to go putting something like a pathelocyanine green into a lapis because it'll, it'll just annihilate it. But then, of course, if you just lay lapis over a, a, an almost, you know, transparently, almost as a glaze, 
over a white, and it has this this gentleness about it. Or you combine it with something like a terra verde, which has got a sort of similar power. Then the, you, then you start to realise that these are, if you like, instruments of the same orchestra. They they relate to one another. Um, I I wear I wear several hats really. When I'm when I'm trying to, to consider a colour and to introduce the range, yes, I want to introduce romance. I want to introduce history, and so I might look at uh, paintings by the old masters and what worked for them. And you know, can I can I source an obscure pigment, which is a constant struggle. Um, oh, and vermilion. I mean, vermilion drives me mad because, to me, vermilion is one of those things that, ah, uh, it's it's just as essential as a lead white, as a stack lead white. But the price, I, I have one source in the world, and the price has just rocketed slowly, well, I say slowly. It's just over the last three or four years, I'm now that I'm now being expected to pay five times the price. And it's got to the point where I have to consider you guys out there when I realize that you're probably thinking that I'm I'm trying to put a noose around your neck, get you addicted to it, and then keep pushing the price. It's got to the point where I, I recently told the supplier, I said, you know what, I'm not going to buy it from you. So I'm, I'm exploring making that. Uh, that's made by... It's much, much safer than the, the lead white. All I've got to do is play around with mercury on this occasion. Uh, now, joking aside, it, it, you combine mercury with sulfur, and there's a couple of processes that are involved with it. I, I've yet to experiment with it. Reading like crazy about it, and you, most, you, you produce this most marvellous this red, and again, it's another a colour which has such fantastic history through so many different cultures. Um, so that's probably going to make my project for what remains of this year, because I, I just can't tolerate the prices for the... The, for the vermilion and the great thing about this is if I do succeed with that it means that I can probably introduce several different shades of the vermilion and, 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 and go come also into the oranges and things like that that uh, were around um, vermilion is one of those colours which is slightly frowned upon in history because it had a reputation of going black I yeah I, I, well black when I've seen it on paintings I was in the Coulthard Institute in London some years ago with uh uh, one of the restorers there, a lady called Aviva Bernstock, and I was having this discussion with her, and she was showing me on a, a Joshua Reynolds painting with a magnifying glass at the surface, and there were vermilions there. And she said, if you look at the absolute little, the little peaks of the impasto, you get this mm-hmm. little, what looks like a, a brown, brown, browning sort of colour. And she mm-hmm. said, that is, seems to be what we're talking about. And I must be honest, I... Um, the modern-day vermilions, I have been playing around with, and I, I, the one that we were have working with, I've been testing it for 10 years in sunlight. It seems to be sunlight that triggers the, uh, the degradation. I can't get it to go black. So there does seem to be certain things to do with the process of making it, that some of the old processes uh, were, if you like, weak and had this tendency to, to allow it to go black. Many theories about it, whether it's to do with sulfur dioxide fumes and the, from oil lamps and interacting with the chemistry, but I'll, I'll keep you all posted on that because that, that's going to become my next project. So, yes, yeah. sometimes I sometimes I, I look at my shoulder to hundreds of years ago and other times I, I look at pigment lists by fantastic modern uh, industrial suppliers, the, the, the likes of the big industrial companies who are 
striving to produce marvellous new colours for cars or, or other sort of decorative paint finishes. And it, it's and on many occasions we all are lucky because we sort of follow the shirt, you know, we hang on to the shirt tails of the industry in a way because an uh, artist colour is, is quite a small part of, of colour industry, believe it or not. If you look at the sort of the automotive industry or... You know, if you look if you look around your room, you, you, anything from the the colours of your walls to the the the, the sort of the colour plastic of your phone or your, your your computer, they've all got pigment in them. Therefore, there's been a pigment decision, if you like, and uh, um, something has to be made which which um, introduces colour to that material. So the pigment industry is absolutely massive, and as I say, artist colours occupies quite a quite a minor part of it. But in some ways. Okay, we we we've lost things like, oh, you know the the, the colours we've been talking about, but mm-hmm. then we've gained other fantastic things like quinacridone, which of course produced the most marvellous magentas, and you know this is this is real uh, what I call designer pigments. It's it's colours which are made by uh, modern chemistry. Uh, they're more light fast than than our forefathers could have ever dreamt of. And produce the most wonderfully oh, charismatic colours, and light fast. So we've never had it so good. So in a sense, right. as I say, I, I wear several hats. I I look at the past, I look at the future, I look sideways. Uh, yeah, it, um, I look out of my window, I look at a landscape, and I I look at. I think something sometimes, and this is me speaking as an artist. I look at shades of blue in the sky and still think that even with lapis or ultramarine pathalocyanine, nature's still got us licked. And mm-hmm. even if you paint taking 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 a chunk of nature, be it a, a a rock that you can see, by the by the time we've introduced it and it's been processed and into a form of art, it, it's still uh, no nature. Nature has us every time, and we just we just. Paint in hope, I think, of, of replicating the intensity. Um, it's just the way that light works, and this is probably more the conversation for a physicist to, ex- to explain why the luminosity of light will. Uh, you know, I, I try as much as I can to encapsulate by by loading the pigment up, so that the, the chroma is is abundant within my paint, and that's I think what is is generally recognised by artists when they say that my my paint, you know, takes the eye out, it has zing, it has vibrancy or whatever the word the words are that they're kind enough to use. But um no, um nature every, every time we, we we can we can never we can never beat nature. Mother nature has us every time. So you know, you think of the landscape where the landscape changes every moment, every every millisecond the, the light moves and intensities change and you know, by the by the time that a plain air painters try to capture the Grand Canyon Sun's move around and all the statements have changed. So never, you know, and and that's I think why we can never attain that that perfection. And I think we should always put it out of our heads as an attempt to do so. Right. Um, I'm sorry to give you such a long kind of convoluting answer to that, that Linda. But yeah, I get I get very carried away on these things, as you know. I just I, I sometimes I can't control my passion, and uh, and that's the way it goes. But I but I hope that answers your question. Yeah, it does. I, you know, I mean, part of it naturally is a passion for you. I mean, it's you know, you found what it is that you're supposed to be doing in the art world today, and it, it certainly comes passion. through. And in your study, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. 
but you enjoy doing it. I mean, otherwise, I mean, if you really hated it, Michael, you wouldn't be sitting here making colors for everybody. So no, I know, I know. <laughs> I, I absolutely love it. I, I love, I, I love so many aspects because I love the people that I'm unfortunate enough to encounter. I, I love talking to artists. I love troubleshooting problems for them. I, um, you know, just any type of discussion. And I, as I've always said, artists are, are welcome to contact me as I constantly do with. Uh, sometimes it might be a criticism, which I like to think I, I solve and explain. Um, sometimes it might be, oh, it's a handling quality that they're having difficulty with. Or other. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely pen- uh, passionate and obsessed, you could always say. I, in some ways, I like to think of myself as the chef in the kitchen, constantly sort of playing and, and, and devising new things and, and um, uh, just just uh, concocting uh variations and stuff like this and I mean at the moment to be able to add new colours and I'm looking at shade cards by various pigment manufacturers and the, the most wonderfully wild and exotic things that ah, oh, I, I can't tell you about the words but yeah I, I I love what I do and I hope people forgive me when occasionally I, I might be a bit outspoken and, and, and condemn something like oxide of chromium Tomorrow I might hit another green, and, and so yeah, that's that's me speaking as an, as an individual artist, and um, I think that artists are always trying to sort of. Uh, often I, you know, I constantly get asked, "Okay, come come on, Michael, tell me which colours should I be painting with?" And I have to say, "Well, come on, I can't decide that. You have right. to decide that. No, 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 but right. tell me which ones would work for me." And okay. <laughs> Sometimes if a, if a guy is a portrait painter and I know they've they've got an interest in historical stuff, then of course I can I can tell them about the the old stuff. If on the other hand they're a, a, you know a very sort of uh, active, you know modern, uh, outgoing, contemporary, and it's all about zing, then we have a different conversation. And I, I cheat in a way because I always say to people you should you should paint with what you like. Because there's no point in painting with what you don't like, and then they they look at a, a colour chart, and um, I say to them, "Well, which ones do you like?" And they go, "Well, I like this colour, I like that colour, I like this colour." Okay, well, you've just answered your own question because it, it in, a, in a way it's almost elementary. You're not going to succeed with the painting if you're actually fighting it because you that you don't like the colour. You know, if you if you're working hypothetically with the yellow and red that you don't like, and it's producing this weird orange. And you don't like it, that's going to come across in your painting. You've got to, you've got to yeah. almost be turned on. It's 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 a love. It, it is it is almost like it's almost fundamental. It's like making love, and you make love with colour. If you get colours which you love, if your starting point is, oh wow, look at that yellow, oh look at that red, um, oh put together, oh look at that orange, then you stand a chance of, of creating a painting that. Is entertaining, vibrant. All right, there's another school of thought where might, someone might say to me, "Yeah, I, okay, but I'm coming from somewhere else. I want to paint. I want to paint some of the images. I'm anti-painting. I don't want it to be nice. I want it." Then fine, choose your colours. Choose them in a way that choose the colours. Choose the colours from the selection that you hate. Go with that. If that's the way you work, it's almost sort of. Um, it's a very philosophical point. It's the sort of thing where the, maybe the surrealists and, and, and people like that who like to sort of uh, hover around the boundary of what is art and what is not art. 
um, right. that, you know, maybe that's an area that they should play with, and, and who am I to say that they shouldn't? Um, it's totally up to each individual artist to, to decide, you know, that, that moment of, of self-expression is their moment, it's not mine. I, all I'm doing is making a tool. And what I love doing to an artist is saying, here, try this tool, tell me if it works for you. They might come back and go, no, 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 it doesn't, but I discovered something else that does. And that is an absolute joy for me. That that means, I mean, when artists send me emails, after, you know, I might make a suggestion of a colour and they've tried and, it, and it's worked for them, and they send me an email saying, oh, oh, wow. I, I you know, I, 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 I'll be absolutely honest with you, I get a bit emotional about it. Because to be able to sort of, you know, I was a complete dunce at art school. Like, you know, I was just ordinary and dull and I just shriveled away my time without really focusing. When an artist achieves the sort of thing that I wish I was today achieving, and, you know, when the, and yeah, okay, I, I still paint. But they, when, the, when, when an artist contacts me and says, my painting's just let forward because of something you told me, I get really emotional about it. Um, and I, I feel so flattered that people trust me to take take part in the in the, in the art life like this. It's, it's just, you know, and you know, I've, I've, I'm one of these people, and there's, there's a number of lucky people on this planet where people will say, "I'm so lucky because I I, I do the thing I love," and I'm one of them. I, I just love doing what I do and talking to artists, solving problems for artists, and. And helping them on the way by giving them a good tool is is just such a passion for me. Yeah. Well, I, I tell you, I can't wait to, uh, and it'll probably be a while. I'll probably have to wait a while. But is the uh, French ochre because, and this kind of leads into the limited palette discussion that I want to have with you. Um, you know, I started out with a very limited palette, and I did it so that I could understand and and get a handle on color mixing and color harmony. And I, and I think, yeah. and I actually, when I teach, I teach from a limited palette because I think those two things are very important, and I think a limited palette helps them. But it, it's kind of interesting, too, because when you get into a comfort zone with a limited palette, you know, all of a sudden it's like, well, I can't go away from this palette that I've developed and that I've, it basically becomes unlimited because you learn how to mix the colors that you need. Um, yeah. But one of the things that I, I have been painting, which you know, is um, some my cats. And my cats are uh, tabby cats, and so they have the black, and they have the ochres, and they have white. And you know, when they're in the sun, you see these really beautiful blues and their black color, and um, some purple sometimes, it's, depending on the light. But I'm it's, it's just and it, if, if it's if it's one way we could solve this problem would be to maybe have the color of your cats change. I mean, I'm sure we could have some dyed <laughs> a different color, which would allow you to use different cards within the palette. I mean, is that way that we could we could get you out of this little little groove you found yourself in? No, I'm well, sorry, no, I'm being suspicious. <laughs> I know you are. <laughs> but actually, my cats wouldn't like it if I painted them. So it's not good. I put that on my Facebook status one time. It's like, I'm going to go paint. Uh, actually, it was Julie Gallo's cat. I'm going to go paint Fluffy. And so basically, you leave the cat alone. So it's kind of I saw that painting, and it's a, it's a damn fine bit of art because... It's, oh, it's, of course, the, the, terrible, the terrible danger with painting uh, pretty animals, of course, is to keep, try and keep away from the cliché. And mm -hmm. uh, I think you've done it terribly well. I mean, there's some very, mm -hmm. some very bold and honest brush strokes there, and uh, I'm sure that 
I'm sure the gallows would be delighted that that fluff is now immortalised. So, which is yeah, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, right. It, but what I but it's interesting because to paint those particular colours to get to the colours that I wanted to use, and I've um, I've actually used some of your colours uh, in in those paintings, and and you know I had to change my palette. I mean I went to a black, a yellow ochre, and um, a red cadmium, and I I don't know I had a whole bunch of uh, colours on my palette that I was mixing up to get those colours that I needed in there, and it, so it was kind of like you know it was really freeing moving from that limited palette to these other, you know, it was still primaries. I was still using primary colors, but they yeah. were just warmer or cooler in temperature. So, you know, it's like part of the discussion is I like to have is when you're talking with um, your ambassadors and other artists out there, are you, you, know, you see a lot of palettes, and some of them are probably pretty unusual. Uh, you you get a few surprises. It's quite interesting because um, I was in Jeremy Lipkin's studio recently mm-hmm. and he's an incredibly good technician. And what I found interesting was that there were, uh, you get a couple of little surprises creep in. I looked at his paintings and thought, yeah, um, X, Y, and Z, I can see what's going on there. But then he'll have colours in there which were really... I'm trying to give an example now, having said that. <laughs> he, had, he, had, he had the odd colour, which uh-huh. I didn't know he used. I think he probably sneaks them in. Maybe it's one of those, those points where it doesn't become a major player, but it becomes something that works, say, to create a, a shadow or a, or a grey. And he mm-hmm. just has a mode of operandum that... I, I don't know if his... Um, an artist who who changes his palette from time to time, or you know he might work with say. I think he tends to work with about sort of thirteen or fourteen colours, if I recall, which is quite a lot actually for most artists. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether some days he'll be painting with seven or eight, and then move over to a painting and be painting with the other seven or eight, or there might be. He might use the same browns or whites. Uh, it's a bit like a, when you try and draw a Venn diagram of which colors are in which painting. Um, yeah. I, I just looked up on the web his suggested colors for his workshop. Yeah. Um, he's got titanium white, cad yellow, cad lemon, cad orange, cad red, alizarin crimson, burnt sienna, ultramarine blue, cobalt blue, viridian, and ivory black. Yeah. Yeah, um, I was surprised that he used cobalt. I think you said cobalt blue. I mean, I sent him some recently. Yeah. That's how I know the cobalt blue is there. And cerulean. Cerulean was another one I sent him recently. Because, yeah, cerulean is another one of those colors I don't like. Um, <laughs> it's just, sorry, guys, it's just me. Other people will, will raise about it, but it's just, it's just me as the discriminating artist coming out there because I'm thinking I always want a bit of zing and I don't find that Cerulean gives me bang for bucks. I, I want, I, you know, I want that electric. If I'm going to do blue, I want it to be electric. Blue, blue for me behaves yeah. in a very, very strange way. Um, Actually, the best thing I ever one... did was get Cerulean off my palette. Yeah, we <laughs> hate Cerulean. We got to, we got, we got to get this kind of that band. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, well, I think, I think 
I don't know whether it's something about the way that my my eyes and my mind work, but when I'm painting and I use blues, particularly color, particularly shades like cerulean, there comes mm-hmm. a point where I actually can't see them as blue anymore. They just become grey. Right. Uh, particularly if you're in a bad light, where I, maybe it's to do with the, uh, the values and the chroma, whereas if you've got yellows and reds going on, they stay... You know, picture, imagine this, you're, you're, you're out, you're landscape painting, you're plain air, um, mm-hmm. the sun goes down and you, you want to carry on a bit. Or supposing you're out there and you're doing a sunset, but the light suddenly goes a bit bad or cloudy day comes along. I then mm-hmm. find that all my blues, e- even if they were fresh and zingy in, a, in, in, a, in one light, 15 minutes later in another light or a twilight, they just go grey. And... Right. So I, I personally, as an artist, fight my blues. Um, I know I'm not colorblind. If that's if anyone's out there thinking that, I <laughs> it, um, yeah, that'd be quite funny, wouldn't it? To be uh, the colorman who turned out to be colorblind. Yeah, don't tell anyone, folks. It's the mm. it's the it's the dog that makes all the decisions for me. He's, he's the color mixer. No. Um, yeah, I think about a guide dog making decisions. That'd be quite a quite an irony, wouldn't it? Um, no, but it makes better decisions. Who, who knows? But yeah, it's just one of those things. As an artist myself, I, I, I yeah, it's, although they're traditional colours, it's it's just preference. I mean, my own palette. When I when I when I paint myself, I, I uh, I'm, I'm for those. Of I, I don't show my paintings much because I'm just I produce so few and I I'm happy to show them and I'm I'm there was a time when I was very shy about my paintings now I just couldn't care when I paint I tend to do portraits or landscapes so I'm figurative I love working with things like lead whites vermilions ochres umbers uh, lapis although I I, I work with lapis. I find it doesn't quite deliver for me. I would use lapis in a landscape, but not in a, not in a portrait more. This mm-hmm. is personal preference. Ochres, yeah, ochres, ochres are great. Uh, all all that sort of earthy stuff that comes from Mediterranean areas, yeah, that's superb stuff and a uh, tremendous building block for any bit of landscapist or or a portrait. If uh, you know they're they're they're, they're so steady. Um, mm-hmm. Those are my personal preferences. Tell me, tell me again your your palette. Well, originally I had been going with uh, French ultramarine blue, uh, alizarin crimson, which I know you don't like. Um, cash oh no, yellow. I love it. I know alizarin crimson. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Along with rosemary, I mean, it's it's one of my favorite colors to make. I love the stuff. Ah, uh, okay. Well, what was the one that you don't like making? But you said earlier, I thought it was... And cobalt turquoise. Oh, no, 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 no. No, I... Oh, okay. I, there's only, I would actually say that probably Alizarin Crimson is one of my favourites. And only, only oh, recently okay. by making Rose Matter. But no, it's it's it just... When I see it on the machine, you know, the, you know it, just when I stir it up, it's I get a bit turned on by it. I want to go and paint. And, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's one of those colours that you can almost relabel and call it ingredients to make flesh. It's just... It's an essential building block, I see. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting because um, I've been finding out, I've been trying to use up a lot of my, my old paint that I had bought previous to using your colors. Um, 
but there is a wide range, a wide difference in a, a lizard and crimson from manufacturer to manufacturer. Yeah, um, interesting that. It's not the cheapest of pigments for us guys, and there's only one manufacturer left in the world. And so, which makes it even more curious. If there was about five or six, I mean, if you want to go and acquire the thalassinine pigment, cello or uh, otherwise, you know, some, some companies name it after themselves, like Windsor & Newton will call it Windsor & Blue, and it's used in a number of shades. And uh, So you know, other people might call it Thalo Blue and and all the rest of it. Um, there's an abundance of choices. There's probably a, hundreds of pigment manufacturers around the world who, who will make it. Where it comes to Amazon and Crimson, there's only one. So all mm. colour makers like myself are drawing from that same source. And as I often say, it's what you do with it that counts. It's not what you put in, it's what you leave out. And as you know, my, my fundamental is uh, leave out the junk. There's, right. there's no need uh, to to pad it out with uh, fillers and stuff like that. I, uh, the less of that, uh, anything like that you put in, the more zing you'll have, or rather the, the more zing the artist will have on the palette, more, the more clarity of color. And the more, right. when, you, when you start doing to mix, the more sharpness will, will, will stay before the color starts becoming a, a sort of a turgid. It'll, I mean, some of you out there, I'm sure you're, you, you've, you've noticed this. If you put three or four colors together, mix them and to mix them, and it starts to become that dirty browny gray color. What I like, uh, and what I'm proud of, and I'd like to think within my pain, is that if you put three or four of mine together, they, they haven't become that dirty browny gray color. They, they're still shining and going, and they're, they're sort of a vibrancy. And that, for me, is yeah, a sign I, that there, there isn't the junk there. Right, I mean, and, I, and I'm going to be totally honest with you, Michael. When I use your colors, I have to rethink how I'm mixing colors because of the difference, how strong your pigments are, for example. Yeah. The junk, the junk that you that that you leave out, that the rest of them put in, I mean, you know, I slam colors a lot easier with your paints <laughs> than I do yeah, with you, and I'm laughing, because it's just like I hit my head against the wall going, this is Michael's paints, these are Michael's paints. <laughs> you don't need to do that, you know. So um, yeah, I, have to, I have to creep up on colors that I mix with your paints. Yeah, I, I'll be honest. Some, sometimes where people have been using uh, another maker for something like 30 years, they change mm -hmm. over to mine. And, and it's a, um, I remember the conversation we had with CW Monday. Um, right. <laughs> and that panic moment all, during weekend with the master. Yeah, that panic <laughs> moment where it's not, it's not behaving in the old way. This is something mm -hmm. new, and it's not. It sort of momentarily doesn't go according to plan. And mm -hmm. and it's a bit like. Um, the analogy I always use it's a bit like if you're used to driving around in a very ordinary car uh, that's just an ordinary car that you can buy off any parking lot in any part of the world for X bucks it doesn't matter what it is but then you right. get into the, you get behind the wheel of the performance car Ferrari or Maserati whatever it might be whatever your you know your Porsche whatever you, anyone out there favours and you touch that throttle and suddenly there's that roar of the engine like a wild animal. And paint can do that. You know, you, if you put on your palette, supposing you're out in the landscape, you take a cadmium yellow and you put a terravert and you mix them together, and you're used to mixing them together in an ordinary range, and you, you, you get a, a sort of a yellowy green. With, with mine, that's not going to happen. 
you're right. going to annihilate the Terravert. The Terravert, even though my Terravert's made exactly the same criteria as all my other colors, maximum pigmentation, I get as much Terravert in it as I possibly can, which is a, a green earth from Cyprus. It's a very weak tint power. The key thing is that, you see, when I make my cadmium yellow, I get as much cadmium and yellow in there as I possibly can. And cadmium yellow has a phenomenally high uh, covering and tint power. And so, as a result, if you take an equal, equal part of those two colors and mix them together, you're going to find that, the, you know, the, the terravert is going to be completely annihilated. Right. So, you, you sort of start to know this. Your mode of operandum changes, and you just take a, a tad, a little bit, of cadmium yellow and just attach it into the green or go the other way around, take that green, take it to the yellow. Mm-hmm. I, I remember some years ago I had an artist who I persuaded to try my paint and he intermixed it with a, you know, part mine, part someone else's. And he said, mm-hmm. oh, your paint's terrible. As soon as I used your cadmium <laughs> yellow, my whole palette went yellow. And I said, well, it's the other way around. It's not, it, all my paint has done is embarrass the other maker because it means that they haven't got much pigment in. Right. Unless, of course, you're working with the other makers, Terravert, you know, with due respect. It, 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 you know, it, these colors intermix differently. Some, some makers will argue, and I'm, who am I to say this is wrong? It's my personal philosophy and it doesn't work for me, but they will argue, whoa, okay, well, we need to homogenize these colors a bit, so we, you know, we need to calm down that cadmium yellow. We need to leave half of it out. So we'll put a thinner in, so that the tint power, this tinting strength, and the covering power goes right down. So that when uh, you know the artist out there starts into mixing these things, it's a little bit more gentle. But that takes the thing out. I mean, that that's sort of like putting a a suppressor on your car engine. So that right. when you put your foot, well, but go on. I was just going to say the one thing that I have learned with using your paints is how much color I was leaving out of my paintings. You know, I mean, it really has expanded oh. my use of, of color and seeing color in a painting. It's like, you know, before, it, I, I, you know, I'm mentoring a couple people, and, you know, and a, a lot of times I'll, I'll sit there and I'll look at, you know, things that I have painted with your paints, and I'll sit there and go, wow, just look how much more color is in that, that painting versus yeah. something, you know, that I've done with, cheaper paint. <laughs> and, and yeah, no, it's, it's, and it's so just, you know, it comes, I just sit there and look at the difference and go, wow, you know, it's like it's like taking a, a black and white TV and putting those little screens on on top of it, you know, and then all of a sudden they called that color. I don't, you know, I don't know what those little screens were called, but, you know, just to, and then going out and buying a real color TV. <laughs> yeah, I, I get you, I get you. The two of them. I, know a, I know a British artist who very well known, and he, do, he doesn't like me to use his name, so I'm not going to. But I remember some years ago, he said to me, he said, even your blacks stand up, even your blacks glow. Yes. yes and uh, I, thought to, I thought to myself, do they? And I had a good yes, look, and I thought, <laughs> I, I, I thought, well, all right, it's just doing what it should do. I mean, for me, it's just one of those things that, um, I'm slightly baffled that people love my paint so much. In some ways, I'm surprised. In some ways, I'm not. But when I make a paint, I make it, as I say, a bit like the chef in the kitchen. I make it so it tastes good. I mean, don't get confused. I don't put paint in your mouth. 
I make it so that it appeals to the eye. I'm just so careful with what yeah. I say. I don't want people to get the wrong idea. I make it so it appeals to the eye. It's like the, the taste buds of, of, of the eye. And mm-hmm. I mix it up, and I, you know, that bounce between oil and pigment and stuff. And I make it so that it's, yeah, that's, for me, my own palate, that's how I like it. And it's so... It is, it's a wonderful surprise when people say something like, even your blacks vibrate. Mm-hmm. And well, I remember, it's simple for me. I remember, I, 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 sorry, go on. Go ahead. Go ahead, Michael. No, no, no. I, I don't know if you have something to say. No, even the, even the blacks stand up. And um, for me, I'm, I'm doing something in many ways, which for me is terribly ordinary. Uh, mm-hmm. But then I hear these, you know, I get wonderful feedback from guys like yourself who go, oh, yeah, but, you, you know, you've you got to see it. I, mm-hmm. I, I remember I, I, I went through a, a phase, oh, I went about five years without painting, and I started painting, and I was I was doing a, a figure of a, of a black lady, a nude, and I was able mm-hmm. to use wonderful sort of ochres and siennas, and uh, umbers, and I wanted to get that, you know, that sort of quality where, where the, you get that sheen on skin, where uh, where you get a curve and it turns, and you get that highlight. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. learned to lay paint down, and I remember, as I put paint down, I was going, oh yeah, <laughs> oh yes, now I see what they're going on about. Right. I tell you, test driving, test driving my own product, mm-hmm. it was just, it was wonderful. Um, I can't claim I created a great painting on that occasion, <laughs> but in terms of when I had artists, and I, 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 you know, I have to say, I just, I'm reminiscing. You know when you get a flat sable and you you get the paint and you put a bit of medium in and you, 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 you you're on the palette for about, a minute or two, and you're playing and you're looking, you look at the subject, you look at the painting, you look at the subject, you look at the painting, you look at your palette, and you go you go round again and you're out in your mind's eye, and you prepare mm-hmm. that brush stroke, and you get it so that you know that the next dab, that, that those those hairs, that bristles, that, you know, that sabre is going to make, you've got it prepared. It's like, it must be almost like the, the surgeon in his scalp, or you know that the, you're about to Slit something. You're about to deliver that brush stroke, and you got it so that that paint so prepared that you got it to the right intensity, the right color mix of that brush, and you take it out of that canvas, and you just let you touch and you pull it, and it delivers down. And you just think, and it just goes, it just goes down exactly like you wanted, mm-hmm. and there's nothing quite like it. And when I did that, I did it a few times, and I just suddenly thought. Oh yeah, I get it now. I get it. Mm-hmm. I understand what they're raving about. And in some ways, I have to be careful what I say because in some ways I thought, are they just, are they just getting mesmerised because it's a, uh, a guy almost making this stuff by hand? I mean, uh, it's a bit like the empty <laughs> clothes, or other, other, you know, uh, and, and I just kind of go, yeah, I see now. And it was yeah. such a wonderful revelation for me. As I said, I hadn't painted for something like five years. And the actual, because when when you make paint, you know it it 
if you stir it around in your hands, you play around with your fingertips and stuff like that, and you go, yeah, yeah, that's okay. But when you dabble with a brush and you, and you make a mark and you relate to what you're seeing with your eyes, and it, and it, and it was, it was just extraordinary. It was, oh, I could have danced. It was, it was, it was bizarre. So I was quite yeah, pleased. Yeah, well, it's getting impression. Yeah. Yeah, it, well, and I can remember when we were over at um, the American Impressionist Society in in, um, in November of last year, and you had graciously given a, a tube of your paint, you had a mixture of, of colors that, that went out to the artists that um, were registered, and, and I remember we were sitting together, and you go, so what tube did you get? And I got black, and you were like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I loved it. I went home, and, you know, I, like I said, I painted my cat's, not actually painted my cats, but I painted a cat on a canvas and um, with it, using it. And I was like, oh, okay, let's see what happens. I, mean, I started experimenting. I was like, let's see what happens when I add a little bit of yellow in. And, you know, I mean, it was great. I I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> you were very funny. happy my, that I got black. I, well, in some ways, I wanted something, you know, a little, a little, perhaps a little more zingy for you. Um <laughs> But but anyway, as, as you were just saying about you painted your cat and stuff like that, I was thinking, uh, well, maybe you had a black cat, and then I was thinking about the challenges of. In uh, my, <laughs> my my artist mind, immediately I was playing around with the idea: if you if you've got a black cat and you're painting a black cat against a black background, then uh, you know immediately the one colour you need is white. Right. In my, um, for fun, and I'm just sort of playing with that that, that scope of that because, of course, um, you start to, you, you start to paint the unblacks, as it were. But yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah. yeah it, it's so, so difficult tell, how do you come when, up? Go on, sorry. I, I, no, I don't want to steal what you were going to say. Go ahead and. No, I'd, I'd rather you ask the question because I feel I'm stealing the show a bit because I get verbal diarrhea, as you know. So please, no, grab no, it away. You've been, you've been fine. You've been fine. I was the, the last question that I was going to ask you was. Um, you know, is there a way that we can punch up our vocabulary on paint and color because? You know, I always love when, when um, and I do it too, when I'm teaching is, is I'll be sitting there talking to someone and I'll go, oh, no, I want that purple to be a little bit more on the red side. <laughs> and, of course, we've got a color wheel in front of us, you know, so, so that's very helpful yeah. to the students that are beginning. But then, you know, I look at the name of some of your paints, like Scarlet Lake, and, and you know, if I say, I want that to be the color of a plum, everybody knows what color I'm talking about, red plum, you know, of course, you have to, give them a little more, not a particular plum type thing, but, you know, a black plum or a red plum type of thing. But, you know, is there, is there's, should we, should we stop saying, I want that purple to be a little bit more on the blue or the red side and start using other words to describe colors like, like you do with your paint tube colors? Yeah. I mean, I think that in some ways, um, maybe we should stop totally talking about, um, colors and it's it's interesting how the the disciplines parallel over i mean obviously there's scales like the master scale um Mm -hmm. there's various other ones where people have attempted to orchestrate to control to be able to replicate to stabilize consistency and if you look at something like music, music has definitive structures. I'm not a musician, so I hope I'm not saying something that's incorrect, so I apologize if I am. As I understand it, music has structures, it has formulas so that we can, or they can produce, reproduce, 
um, music. Um, the, the parallel would be, of course, so that we had scales and systems where we could replicate, um, you know, hypothetically, we could perform a painting every time in the same way uh, because an orchestra could be directed to do that or, a, you know, a, a, a colour mixing group of an orchestra of artists could mix up colours into a of course, that's pure fantasy. You can't work out like that. But that the discipline of sound allows itself, as I understand it, to be communicated in that way. Where it comes to colour, I think it's you have to almost look at this almost from a sort of biological um, point of view. When you think about how human beings perceive things, something like 93% of perception is done visually by the eyes. Uh, and then I think it's something like six percent by hearing, and then, and then there's, or, or you know, and then there's always this shocking thing about how much smell means to us, and and so on. There's this touch and this taste, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and there we go on. But um, the majority of stimulus comes through the through eyes, and that, of course, is because of you know when uh, Mother Nature again designed us as human beings from the sort of at Darwinian's point of view, we, we decided human beings ended up depending upon vision as gatherers or hunter-gatherers or animals, whatever you like, and, and so we became successful by using our eyes a lot. And I think where it comes to sort of spotting out the landscape, uh, a, a moving antelope or a hiding lion, <clears throat> which is completely assimilated in its background, and uh, so man's skill for home to spot milli shades of change to be able to spot you know, is is that little bit of brush over there moving? Is that just the wind, or is that is that actually a lion there? And is there a slight shade difference, which is showing that the the lion doesn't have perfect camouflage? And so, of course, survival is based upon it. And I think this is why we've ended up with the ability uh, to perceive absolutely. I mean, of course, all colours, in a sense, merge into one another. There's no definitive. It's not as if there's five billion shades and they're definitely five billion, they all merge and slowly become them. You could infinitely keep some dividing colour, as I understand it. Make mm -hmm. your blue slightly more yellow, then a little bit more yellow, and a bit, little bit more yellow, and a little bit more yellow. There's, it's infinite. It's almost, it's almost silly to try and introduce a scale which is measurable by it. But in the same way that um, Eskimos have, I don't know how many different ways to to describe the nature of snow, because of course it's immediately in their environment, we've almost been saturated out. Because if mankind can differentiate, differentiate literally hundreds of billions of shades, like musical notes being different, it, it, it always becomes absurd. If I was trying to communicate with you and said, "Oh, Linda, do you know the green?" I mean, it's it's green, um, seventy-five, six hundred thirty-five thousand four hundred twenty-nine, um, with a slight bit of yellow. 29 in it becomes ridiculous and right. it is only what you see it to be uh, and that's even before we even complicate it further by starting to talk about the, the effects of local colour um, how right. you might get a colour right then you put its neighbour next to it or you play around complimentary um, right. it's a never ending story it just, it, it's so infinite it's, it's absolutely impossible to con and that's the most marvellous thing about it, because unlike the Eskimos have 49, well, we haven't got 59 billion different descriptions of colour. You say plum, but put 50 plums, or even put two plums out in front of you, they're both plum colour, but they're both completely different if you start looking at them. 
plum, the plum which is on a, a wooden table, the underneath part which goes into shadow, will have certain colours. Its neighbour next to it will have different ones. They'll be similar, but they'll be different. Um, yeah. And it's never ending. I mean, this yeah. this question is one that you, I mean would almost be one probably better answered by a physicist in a way you can explain what colour really is and what light really does. Uh, we, the artists, of course, we just play around with nature on it and we just use it to our advantage. Um, you want a little bit of electric guitar in or do you want a little bit of cymbals or do you want the, you know, a little bit of a plucking of a harp? We, we, just, we just gather these things in and use them on our palette as, as we as the artist conductor see fit. Um, mm-hmm. And rules, well, rules are meant to be broken in many, many ways. Uh, limited palettes, they can they can help people harness and, and focus. And imagine this, supposing you had a string quartet uh, and then you decided that it would be rather fun and appropriate to have a, a you know, Jimi Hendrix come and play his guitar with them. There would be this juxtaposition and who's to say that is not art, uh, right. it's not music. But when you get something like uh, Terra Vert and a Lapis and Alizar and Crimson, uh, Vermilion, and, and then you put with it Pithalocyanine Green or Blue, or a, a Yellow Lake, and a Diaralamide. You know, these are colours which are sort of almost nuclear-powered, and of course they, yep, okay, you, out, you guys out there, you're the artist, you, you make that hard decision, I don't. All I do is put mm-hmm. those tools out in front of you, and, and you have to gather, gather together colours which you feel might work for you, that can convey what's in your, your mind's eye. You might not know. I mean, right. for some artists, it's, it's sometimes it can be a bit of a journey. Um, yep. Michael, they have gone. We've got ten seconds left, <laughs> so um, I'm going to need to say goodbye. No problem. Um, I, I would love to talk with you, as you know, forever and ever and ever about your colors. But uh, thank you so much for being here, and um, I, I do appreciate. Um, your time and your knowledge uh, around color. So um, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's always great fun, and I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, the only thing I would say out there to everyone is just enjoy your painting. That's the most fundamental thing, because it's a, it's a form of love, and you've got to love the paint, you've got to love what you're painting, unless your work's about something else, and then, then great, get on with it. But uh, enjoy. Yeah. Okay, so uh, we will see everybody next month in July. Um, I'm actually talking to a couple folks to see who we're going to have on the air, so you'll need to, to uh, make sure that you check back to see who that will be. And um, Again, I hope that the, the show tonight answered a lot of questions around color and um, the stack lead white and uh, different things. Well, I guess we actually covered a whole range of topics <laughs> this evening, so... Um, Everybody have a good evening, and we will see you next month. Bye, everybody. Good night, everybody. Thank you.